Well, good morning again. Half of you left. Oh, I know what they're doing. They're signing up for my seminar next week. I got it. Well, let's stand together, and um, if you've got a Bible or a, uh, or a device, uh, we are at Psalm 132. Now, let me tell you what we're doing over the Christmas season. We're doing what I have titled Obscure Christmas Texts. That is that these are Christmas texts in the Bible that are not well known and, matter of fact, are a little hidden, if the truth were told. And Psalm 132 is one of those. And I'm going to read the green, and you're going to read white. That is green, by the way. You're going to read white. This is what it says. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephrath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Epaphratha and Jaar kind of got you, huh? I'm sorry, I should have taken that one. <clears throat> for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath for which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray together. Father, again we pause to give thanks and praise particularly for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the work and the ministry of the Spirit, that, as we said before, takes everything you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible, available, applicable in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask now that the same Holy Spirit would help us to have a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and as we go out of this place, beyond this property, beyond this facility, and we go out into our lives, into our marriages, our relationships, our families, into our schools and into our places of work and our places of recreation and where we get our services, that that same Holy Spirit would help us to live out in practical, meaningful ways what it means to be the followers of Jesus Christ. And in His name, we ask these mercies. Amen. 
Why don't you be seated? So our text this morning is Psalm 132. Psalm 132 is one of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. Now, the 15 Psalms of Ascent, they tell us, were sung by the worshipers as they would go up to Jerusalem. And literally, they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a hill, on a mountain. They would go up to Jerusalem. As they were going up to Jerusalem, they would sing these 15 psalms. And of course, three times a year, Deuteronomy chapter 16, 16 tells us that they were supposed to do this. Now, another person said this, that these 15 psalms of ascent were the psalms that the Levitical singers the priest singers would do is that there are 15 steps that go up to the temple and on each step they would recite one of the 15 psalms of ascent from 1 to 15 pretty powerful image but this morning we're looking at it and we are looking at it as a psalm of Solomon Solomon is writing about his dad his father David but more importantly And I want you to keep this in your mind. He is writing about the presence of God. The psalm begins with King David's great passion. And it begins with the prayer of request. David asked God to remember him, to remember his difficulties, to remember his hardships. Now, Psalm verse 1 does not tell us what the hardships or the difficulties are, but if we read through the story of David's life, we know that there were many difficulties and there were many trials and there were many tests. And I thought about this prayer. I thought about this song, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured and I thought man that's actually really a good prayer for us to be praying Lord remember our hardships and our difficulties but David's great passion is really about the presence of God and more particularly in this text it is the presence of God symbolized in the ark of the covenant David will not rest until God rests. And we read these words in Psalm 132, verses 2 to 5, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is David's great passion. David wants to find a place, a permanent structure, a permanent house, a permanent building, a permanent temple for the presence of God, particularly, as we said a moment ago, symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for those of you that don't have a lot of Bible knowledge, and uh, you're just kind of learning the Bible and reading it, let me give you a little quick history, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is basically a wooden box that looks something like this, that's covered in gold. It is exactly 133 centimeters long. 
It is 80 centimeters wide and high. If you need the translation, it's four feet, three inches long, and it is two feet and six inches wide and high. It's covered with gold. It has two images of angels on the cover, which is referred to where the angels are right here. The top is called this mercy seat. Now, but the most important thing about the Ark of the Covenant to David and to the people of Israel in the Old Testament is that it is the symbol of God's presence on earth. During the time of Eli the high priest when the prophet Samuel was just a little boy, uh, probably in single digits somewhere between one and five, six, the Ark of the Covenant is taken by Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 5 following tells us that they found the Ark of the Covenant very troubling. Matter of fact, the Bible says that because they had the Ark of the Covenant, that tumors were breaking out on, with, on the people, the Philistine people. And it was very difficult to them, so they decided that the best thing that they could do was return the ark back to Israel. So what they do is they load it, and they bring it down, and they bring it across to a place called Beth Shemesh. And one of the things that happens, one of the peculiar things that happens is when they get it down to Israel, now Israel some of the Israelites did not understand the Ark of the Covenant, that it is the symbol and it is the place of God's presence on earth. Seventy people looked into the Ark of the Covenant and the Bible said they all died. God killed them. Anybody ever watch Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's the exact image that's there. It's so well done. I was going to play it for you, but I didn't have enough time. They sent it down to this place called Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab. <laughs> now the Bible tells us that the Ark of the Covenant lay there for 20 years, just totally neglected and totally ignored. It's there for 20 years, and when David becomes king, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim, he wants to bring it up to Jerusalem. And if we look at 2 Samuel 5-7, to it tells us the story, and 1 Chronicles chapters 13-17 to sort of fill in the details. And David's intention in moving the Ark of the Covenant, in part, was to restore its dignity as the symbol of God's presence. Now, if you know the Bible at all, and you've read the Bible at all, uh, <clears throat> the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. But on the other side, David was a bit of a rascal. And um, David was not exactly the innocent person that we like to think of him as the writer of the Psalms. Part of David's move was politically motivated. Because by installing the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence in Jerusalem, what he was trying to do in one fell stroke was to transform Jerusalem into a temple city 
to make it the religious center of Israel, but also to make it a political center. And nothing would do that more than the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. Now, there's a very famous story in the Old Testament <clears throat> that when David decides that he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, they load it on a wagon. And there's a man by the name of Yuzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, Yuzah. And they are crossing this rough spot on the way, and the oxen stumble, and Yuzah reaches out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant so it doesn't fall off the wagon. And God strikes them dead. Because you are not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. The priest, not a wagon, the priests, the Levitical priests, are supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. They are the only ones that are authorized to do so. And so they were flippant about the presence of God. So what we read is that when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read that it stays at the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. It's quite the handle, isn't it? Obed-Edom. Stays at his house for three months. And so the reality is that David is both scared and he is angry. He's angry at God for killing Uzzah. But he's also scared. He's afraid of God. And so he hears that God has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and his family to such an extent that it is actually, the word is getting out all over Israel about how blessed God is blessing them. So David goes down again, and he takes the Ark of the Covenant, and this time properly, he goes down with the priests, and the authorized priests put it on their shoulders, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with great pomp and pageantry. And this is where David danced before the Lord. Now, David's passion, as I told you earlier, was to build a permanent residence, a permanent structure for God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> Up until this time, the Ark of the Covenant has dwelt in a tent. In the Old Testament, the old language is in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the desert, but it's really a tent. It's a portable unit, unit that goes up and it comes down. But David will not rest until God rests. And so he wants to build this permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant, for God's presence, and it will be a magnificent structure. And then we come to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 1 to 14, and it's also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. And David comes to the prophet Nathan, and he says to Nathan, I want to do this. I want to provide a temple. And Nathan says, go ahead, do what's in your heart to do. But during the night, God speaks to Nathan the prophet. 
And God says five things to David through Nathan. Number one, that David is not the one who is going to build this magnificent structure. Number two, God says, I have not and will not and do not need to reside in human structures. Number three, God says that God did not ask David to do what David wanted to do. The third, fourth thing that God reminds David of is that he took him as a shepherd from the shepherd's field and made him a king. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. <clears throat> and the last thing and the most important thing is this, is that Solomon, David's son, not David, is the one who was going to build this magnificent residence for God's presence for the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason being is because David has too much blood on his hands. He's a warrior. He's a man of battle. And God says, somebody who is a man of blood cannot build this building. Only a man of peace, a person of peace, can build the presence or the dwelling place of God. And of course, this is Solomon. Now, we know as time goes on that David accumulates all kinds of building materials and all kinds of resources so that when Solomon gets of age and he takes the throne, he can actually start building this magnificent residence, this temple. And then we read in our text these words in verses 6 and 7. The words that I should have read for you and didn't. My bad. Behold, we heard in Epaphra, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to the dwelling place. Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. Now this is where we see the Christmas connection in our text. Now the name Epaphra should have sort of given us an idea. It should have tipped us off a little bit. The first time that we come to the name Epaphra is in the book of Ruth. A number of Sundays ago, we talked about Ruth as we were talking about the story. And in the book of Ruth, it says this. This is where Boaz goes down to the city gate and he wants to marry Ruth and he goes about doing that, but he has to go get permission from the city elders. And he says this. <clears throat> And then, then the Bible says this, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, he's talking about Ruth, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethel. Now the prophet Micah, of course, is the one that many of us know as being the place where the word Epaphra really comes to bear, where Micah prophesies, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who, you, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, just so you know, Epaphra refers to the vicinity around Bethlehem. More specifically, the fields around Bethlehem, the fields of Jahar. 
Now listen to the Christmas story, particularly from the shepherd's viewpoint. Luke says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, or out in the field of Jahar, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Do you see the connection? Listen to the psalm again. And there's also this. Psalm 6 said, verse 6 says, Behold, we heard it in Epaphratha. We found it in the fields of Jahar. Let us go, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Now listen to the words of the angels again. Or rather, listen to the words of the shepherds again. In Luke chapter 2, it says, And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now listen again, though, to Matthew's words. And Matthew's account, when he tells the story of the wise men or the magi, whichever term you like. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him out of Micah in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Matthew uses the same conceptual language as does Psalm 132. Listen to what it says in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Our text says in verse 7, Let us go to his dwelling place, and let us worship at his footstool. And then there's this. The baby who is laying in the manger in the animal's feeding trough was and is who Micah refers to as whose coming from is from of old from ancient days. This is the same one that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 22. He calls Jesus the ancient of days. It's the same person. And Colossians says He, Jesus, the baby in the manger, in the feeding trough, is the image of the invisible God, for in Him 
all the fullness, all the presence of God was pleased to dwell in him, in this child. In the Christ child is the full dwelling of God. Not in a temple or in a tent, David. Not in the Ark of the Covenant, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And verse 8 of our text says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. Jesus Christ is the true, real Ark of God's might. Now the remainder of Psalm 132 is double entendre. Uh, historically, it's talking about David, it's talking about Jerusalem, it's talking about Israel. We must set the Bible for integrity's sake in its historical context. But prophetically, it also is forward-thinking and forward-looking, and it is speaking about Jesus. Now Matthew 11 or rather, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, tells us this. And the wise men, the magi, came, and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, incense and myrrh. Now, I think we all know that the gifts of the magi have deeper meaning. Gold, frankincense, or incense, if you will, perfume, and myrrh. Now, frankincense, or incense, reminds us that Jesus is a priest. And that he is both the priest who offers the incense, but he himself is also the incense, the frankincense that is being offered to God. Now, most of us know that a priest is a person who is a bridge builder. A priest represents us to God, but at the same time, a priest represents God to us. He fulfills both duties. Psalm 139 in verse 9, and it's repeated again in verse 16, says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. And we read these words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Myrrh. Myrrh is a spice. It's an embalming spice that at the birth of Jesus we are reminded that he came to die. That Jesus is the Savior. There's an interesting line in verse 10 of Psalm 132. It says this, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. But that prayer got answered for David, but it never got answered for Jesus. 
Matthew says, when he was on the cross, my God, my God, Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? It comes right out of Psalm 22. And then finally, gold. Gold is the recognition that Jesus is king. Gold will actually finance their trip to Egypt and their stay in Egypt while they're under persecution and will give them money to come home and reestablish their lives. Gold. But more importantly, gold is about Jesus being king. He is the king. And he is the king of everything. And then Solomon writes in 17 and 18, There I will make a horn to sprout from David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And this then brings us to communion. Because on this Christmas season, as king, we give him our best. As priest, we give him our worst. And as savior, we give him our